0: this edition of the Author show is brought to you by kairos north america kairos are excited to be launching their new infinity lock button system a super simple super fast acj repair system no coracoid drilling high strength low stress less time check out the infinity lock and kairos other new innovations at kairosna.com that's x-i-r-o-s-n-a.com
1: From medical media, this is the Ortho Show. Hello, world! Doctor Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon, here again for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. I am really excited about our interview today. I want you to grab a cup of coffee. I want you to go to a private space, and I want you to be able to really listen to this podcast in detail, because it's really going to be really an amazing, profound, personal story about family, relationships, and humanity here with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce the iconic Tony Romeo, who anyone with orthopedics clearly knows. Uh, he is the chief of orthopedics at the Rothman Orthopedic uh, in New York. He's the chief medical editor for Orthopedics Today. He's the past president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society, former team physician for the Chicago Bulls, as well as the White Sox. And I think we have ourselves another Rudy story, if I'm not mistaken. We have a Notre Dame alumni as well. So, hey, Tony,
0: how are you, man? I'm doing very well Scott. Thank you for that uh, very kind introduction.
1: All right, so so let's let's dive in here because you really do have an amazing story and I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to hear it because it's not this is not going to be your typical orthopedic surgery sort of detailed podcast. It's really going to be about life. And so so you're out in Chicago. All right. You're, you're at the top of the hill. You're the king of the mountain. You're taking care of two sports teams professionally. You're out there for years. You're the, the, the president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society and you're kicking ass and taking numbers. And so all of a sudden uh, you decide you got to go into New York because there's no competition in New York. Right. There's no good orthopedics there. Right. So. So tell us what was going on there.
0: Well, it was a, a very unique experience when I became president of the American Shoulder and Elbow Society. Uh, a number of the people from the Rothman Institute found out that my wife was from South Jersey, less than thirty minutes away from Rothman, and they said, "You know, why don't you come to Philadelphia and, and enjoy that there?" As you just said, I had a, a pretty good gig going in Chicago, and so that didn't seem like the greatest idea in the world, but. Uh, they ran with that a little bit and, and Dr. Rothman found out a little bit more about me and uh, he asked me to come to New York to meet with him and uh, my wife and I met with him and he basically said, uh, I understand you have this incredible practice in shoulder and elbow. You've been a leader in shoulder and elbow. I would like you to come to New York and be my apprentice. I want to share with you what I've learned over running medical practices and and leading people for the last 40 years. I'd like to introduce you to my network of people in the healthcare industry and finance, and we would like to do something very special in New York. Would you please come uh, and do that with me? And uh, I remember leaving that meeting, and I looked at my wife, and I said, boy, that's a really hard thing to uh, turn down. And she looked at me and said, there's no way you're going to turn that down. That's a once-in-a-lifetime offer. And I, I said, well, I, I agree, but we'll have to really figure this out. So we accepted the position. Um, and everything was fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, uh, three months into the opportunity, uh, Dr. Rothman, who was otherwise in great shape, great health, 81 years old, um, had an untimely illness and passed away. And that certainly his, his leadership and vision uh, was a critical part of the whole process. And um, him not being present has uh, sort of changed the landscape. And as you already mentioned, uh, it 's a highly competitive environment in new York, and <laughs> yeah. uh, we 've learned that uh, every step of the way
1: yeah so I, I mean I find it fascinating when i when I talk to people like yourself who are you know innovative leaders. And you here, you are. You're, you know, you're. You could be comfortable. You could just say, you know, this is an awesome job that I have here. But instead, you you looked at a challenge. You looked at a new opportunity and said, this is what's going to stimulate me. This is what's going to keep me going. Uh, and and that's just, uh, it's an amazing thing. I, I'm I'm very similar. I like to do things outside of clinical practice that, that keep me involved and networking with the people that are around. So it's really amazing story that you came to new york so now you come to new york right then you got to recruit people you got to start
0: pretty much from scratch how did you go about doing that well that that's where the networking of the rothman institute certainly was uh to uh, our advantage we had the strength of an organization that already had 200 physicians uh and and had been heavily involved in training um a, a lot of physicians so um reaching into those connections uh, we brought together a uh, a very diversified uh, but subspecialty specific group of orthopedic surgeons. So, a foot and ankle surgeon had done a Rothman fellowship. Our spine surgeon had done the fellowship at uh, at Midwest Orthopedics in Chicago. Uh, and so we were connected there. Uh, We had a sports medicine who was a resident at uh, Rothman, then did a fellowship at HSS, another one that was a resident with us in Chicago and did the fellowship at HSS. So the connections uh, through our two organizations allowed us to put together a very high quality group of young physicians uh, to put this all together in a short period of time.
1: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, one of my favorite stories uh, from Bill Levine who's a dear friend of mine. He's a for everybody that knows, he, he's the chairman of orthopedics at Columbia. He's like, Siggy, you know, where you're in practice, they come in, they tell you they got shoulder pain, you figure it out and you take care of them. It's like, in New York, they come in and they say, look, I've had five opinions and I want to know why you should be doing my rotator cuff surgery.
0: <laughs> and um, and we definitely experience that on a daily basis in New York. I um, and, and the truth is, and those of you from New York uh, will understand this, um, you no matter how successful you are in any other part of the world, for that matter, uh, you have to, again, prove yourself over again in New York. And uh, a lot of people did know of me in Chicago, but there still is this uh, a sense of, can I really trust that what you did in Chicago is going to be the same or as the high qualities in New York? So it's a very... Challenging competitive environment and uh, and certainly you you have to be on your game uh, at all times to be able to to compete in that world So
1: you're rising to the challenge you bring around an amazing team of people that, that you believe in and And you're you're doing pretty good. You're you're moving along. You're developing the name It's a talk of the town. Everybody around the country was talking about it and then all of a sudden you go out for dinner one night and then you wake up the next morning and you can't breathe. Talk to me.
0: Yeah, and just a little background to that story. Um, I, again, part of the Dr. Rothman's gift was his ability to develop relationships, and and so I've met with the, the CEO of major corporations and major healthcare centers, and had an opportunity to develop uh, friendships. And I was actually um, scheduled to go out to dinner. Uh, with one of the CEOs of one of the leading insurers for the state of New York, who I had actually operated on uh, about four or five months before that. And we ended up becoming uh, friends over a, a lot of very similar thoughts on these issues. And he called me on Wednesday and said, uh, this was Wednesday, the 11th of March, and said, we've just changed our policy. Everybody is working from home. I'm very sorry. I know it took some time to get the reservation for Friday Um, but, uh, I can't make it. So, uh, Thursday I went to the operating room, actually it was a Thursday. I went to the operating room, had a a nice full day of surgery. And I called my wife and I said, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to (laughs) make this a second deal for you, but we have this incredible reservation tonight. I really hate to give it up. Would you mind coming into the city and we can go out to dinner? And she goes, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. So we had date night. And we went out to this fantastic restaurant. We had an amazing, uh, it was about a 20 course meal. Someone selecting our wine for us. And it was just a wonderful night. And then Friday was a day in the office and I um, had a case scheduled, but that got canceled. Again, related to the oncoming pandemic, the patient was very nervous about having surgery. So decided the day before to cancel. So I had a, a little bit of an open morning. I got up at my usual early hour to go work out and just walking into my closet, I said, oh no, something, something's happened. This feeling as if someone had poured uh, cement inside of your lungs. When I went to take a deep breath, it wasn't in my upper airway or, or even in my throat. It was even below my sternum. It was a sense that if I took a deep breath, I couldn't open up my lungs all the way because it was uncomfortable. And then when I tried to almost forcefully do it, I started coughing, and it's this dry cough that's uncomfortable. And you recognize you just can't seem to take the same deep breath that you're used to. So I I was concerned that this may be um, the COVID nineteen, of course, because we'd been hearing a lot about it. Uh, but it was still only about 500 cases in New York at that time, so we were early, and I just you know didn't want to get alarmed and uh, and be concerned about it. So I went downstairs with the plan to go to the gym, which I do quite frequently at that early in the hour, early morning. And um, I realized it was actually hard for me to walk down the stairs. It felt like my muscles were sore and achy. So I, I tried to do a little paperwork and I just started feeling worse and worse. And I could tell my temperature was going up and I said, I'm in trouble. So uh, I, I contacted an emergency department physician that I we've known well. And I said, I've got a problem. I think I have COVID-19. And I told him the symptoms. He goes, well, come in and let's take a look at you. So I did. And I met their criteria, including healthcare worker, symptoms, fever. Uh, They tested me. And the next day, it came back positive. And my wife... Um, on that Friday, was feeling a little bit uncomfortable, and uh, to some degree, we weren't quite sure if it was a sympathetic uh, to to my uh, concerns. But it was very clear by the next day, she too had the same problem, and so we said, "Okay, well, we have it. We're healthy. Um, we have a reasonably uh, safe risk factors. So we're just going to have to try to work through this and see how how this works out." But I can't go to work, and you have to stay home. And on top of all that, uh, we have a nine-month-old, at that time, eight-month-old, and we were very concerned about how this might impact her, uh, who had been healthy her entire uh, life on Earth.
1: Yeah and uh so for everybody out there I mean Tony's like the you're in the best shape on the planet you're like the hulk I mean the last time I saw you we were at Zeb Kane's course out in Newport and we're the East Coasters you know we're in the gym at 4:30 you know because we're up because of, uh, of the time difference and uh you know you're 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 amazing workout guy so for you not to be able to breathe going up and down the stairs you're like you knew something was really really desperately wrong and then to be compounded by, by a nine-month-old in the house as well, I mean, that's just really had to have been a, a real scary experience for both you and your wife.
0: Well, Scott, I think that that's the real critical issue that happened, and that is that there was so much that was unknown. Um, we in medicine, and particular orthopedics, don't do so well. Uh, with the unknown. We we like to innovate towards making things new, uh, but we'd like to have a firm handle on, on what we should know. And with this disease, we'd heard a lot of pretty terrible things coming out of Europe, and we just didn't know. We didn't know if the virus was going to be transmitted from my wife to the baby, uh, either through respiration or through the breast milk. And we didn't know if I would be giving it to the baby. And we didn't know, we knew that infants had not been ill, but there were a few cases if you look back in China and South Korea of the children, and most of them were children had medical problems. So we thought we were good, but we just weren't sure. Uh, but I think it was the anxiety of not knowing uh, that really was concerning. Uh, and the other issue that really came up that for a lot of people should understand this is that this virus attacks you and kind of locks in on you. And you almost get a sense uh, that it's just kind of simmering in there. You, you you don't feel terribly worse every day for the first few days, but then it kind of gradually gets a little bit more uncomfortable and a little bit more uncomfortable and then somewhere between seven to 10 days, it can really take a turn for the worse. In fact, in some countries like Germany, once you have the diagnosis, they actually have a team of people come out and look at you uh, at some time between six and eight days because of this phenomenon uh, that once it's been inside of you and growing for a while, a small percentage of people will take a sudden turn for the worse. And so we actually felt that on that seventh day, we actually woke up that morning and later that morning, said to ourselves, "This is getting worse. Now, what do we do?" And in particular, it was worse for my wife, um, and that was very concerning for me. Um, I went ahead, and and you know, I, I know there's a lot of controversy, uh, but we had heard. I called my friends from France, uh, my orthopedic surgeons. I called two orthopedic surgeons from Italy, and they all suggested that I should go on the hydroxychloroquine and Zithromax. They said they they think it was helping. They weren't sure. And so I got a prescription for that and I went on the medicine. I got the prescription from my wife, but my wife was very concerned about the hydroxychloroquine and whether that might have an impact on the baby with breast milk. So she declined it. And it's anecdotal. It's N equal to. So it's no evidence whatsoever. So I don't want to contribute to the controversies that are out there. But what I can tell you is within about 36 hours, I felt substantially better and my wife did not. And there was an evening where it got bad enough where her respirations were picking up and she was just like short of breath as if she was working out couldn't catch her breath that I was able to get uh, a pulse oximeter and check her uh, O2 sats and they were staying above 95. But I checked her two or three times for the next couple nights in a row because she was having that much trouble breathing when she was going to sleep at night. And during all this, she's still taking care of the baby. She's still doing yeah, a lot amazing. of the household things. So Remarkable. it was a, it was a, it was a very, very stressful scary time.
1: time. Yeah, we we have a little personal story too. My wife uh, goes to France about six times a year. She has a, a home and garden store. Does a lot of social media type things and weddings, and so she's got a very large presence in France. So we go to France. It's sort of you know February twenty third, twenty fourth, something like that. Uh, and that was really when the first case was being reported in France and we came back and and she had a little bit of a problem, a little sort of pneumonia before we left, but then she came back and, and she got worse. She had two rounds of antibiotics. And then she's like the strongest woman I know, and she never complains. And she literally had to pull off to the side of the road on the way to get an x-ray because she couldn't breathe and she was literally crying. And so we're all completely convinced now, in retrospect, you know, that, that she had it. We still haven't had her tested, but I, and there's a lot of stories like that, you know, and this is a real difficult virus. I mean, they're, you know, because so many people get it and then they don't even know that they have it and then they can be spreading. So it reacts, you know, so incredibly different to, to different individuals. So, all right, so so thank God you and your wife get through this. The baby's fine, it has no disease. Fantastic,
0: good news. Yes, um, remarkably. Uh, so uh, around 14 days, I clearly had turned the corner, was doing better. And again, I uh, we suggested uh, to my wife that maybe she take the medicine, but she preferred not to. But she was a, was less uh, having less difficulty breathing. But the remarkable thing is, is now five weeks later, we actually um, had her go get uh, uh, someone to listen to her heart and lungs and get a chest x-ray because she's still not 100%. And walking up a flight of stairs still bothers her. And we've been told that this is not unusual for this, even for what they would consider mild to moderate symptoms, not requiring hospitalization, they're telling us sometimes six to 12 weeks for this to resolve. Uh, So I feel quite lucky and I'm trying to do my best to help support my wife as she tries to get back into her activity level that she was used to. Uh, But through all of this, uh, um, Gabriella Grace or Gigi uh, could have, uh, it seems like that whatever exposure she had to the virus, it did nothing to her system whatsoever, which was a real blessing.
1: Fantastic, Ford, GG. Love it. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. My, my wife, Sandra, had very similar. She's, she was a little short of breath for probably about six weeks. It took her a while to really get over the top. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote Brene Brown again, who's one of my favorite uh, podcasters. And so here you are. You know, you're 14 days out. You finally get the green, green flag that you can probably move around a little bit at this point. And, you know, you're in one of the most vulnerable states of, of your lifetime. You're an orthopedic surgeon, you're a healer, your job is to to correct problems for people and make them better. Those superpowers have been taken away. Nobody's doing elective surgery at this point. You know, most people would have just said, I'm just gonna hunker down and chill out, I gotta stay home and and make sure that things are okay. But you you took a very different approach. You you took that vulnerability and you decided to turn it into something positive, a little little courageous action, if you will. And so tell us Tell us what you decided to do when you, when you got the green light.
0: Well, I uh, the the laws and guidelines with regards to returning back to work for healthcare workers changed almost every day for the first few weeks. And by the time uh, we were through our illness, we were told that if we had seven days without symptoms and three days without a fever, we could return back to work with a mask, um, even and you did not have to go in for any testing. So they completely threw out the testing requirement. I have to tell you, I received from the New York State Department of Health, after I tested positive, uh, a commissioner's letter that stated that I am to be, remain isolated to my house for the next two weeks, that I have to pass two tests negative for COVID-19. And if I left my house, I was subject to criminal prosecution. Um, that's what you got to the first two weeks of March. <laughs> of course, none of that. From At holds... to criminal, right? Right, well, right. On. So, uh, so that all has been thrown out. I, maybe it was, uh, self-confidence, maybe, um, just lack of knowledge. But I felt that since I had gone through the illness, I probably had mounted a reasonable immune response and that I should be fairly well protected against the virus at this time. Uh, we recognize that we don't have the true answers to that right now, but that seems to be the prevailing thought. So the residents, and and I'll mention his name, Dr. Teo Mendez, at uh, Lenox Hill Hospital had looked for an opportunity to uh, repurpose themselves within the institution. Um, some places have gone to the emergency department, but as we've all heard, even the emergency department, uh, the number of musculoskeletal cases has dropped precipitously as people stay in their houses. They don't go out late at night. They're not playing sports. And so there, there wasn't a real, uh, opportunity to help there. What was discovered because Lenox Hill became a center for, uh, much of Northwell. In other words, they took their own patients, but if there was overflow, particularly coming from Long Island, they would be transferred to Lenox Hill. So they filled up the hospital very, very quickly with many patients who were severely ill on respirators with COVID-19. And from Italy, uh, the word had been let out that one of the treatments that's used for adult respiratory distress syndrome is to place the patients in the prone position The repositioning of the patients, they're prone, but their head is tilted up 30 degrees, improves the ability for oxygen to get into the bloodstream from a couple of different mechanisms. And it allows the uh, physicians, the critical care physicians to turn down the respirators from the high positive end expiratory pressures that they have to use sometimes and the high percentage of oxygen, which over time actually uh, can be toxic. Uh, and can actually be an iatrogenic injury, which people have been very worried about. So the residents and Teo Mendez developed essentially the flipper group or the prone positioning group, as it was officially called. And uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon, we meet uh, outside of uh, one of the areas and meet with the head of the um, critical care unit. And they would give us a list of patients uh, that need to be turned from the supine to the prone position, and they started this, and I'd heard about it, and I just I just felt a uh, uh, you know, I mean, what better calling for an orthopedic surgeon to use his brain by just helping lift and turn patients? so I thought this was the perfect job for us, and I felt I was safe it's really remarkable when you go into these wards, obviously we have to have full um, personal protective equipment. Uh, But these patients have, um, they may have dialysis coming out of their uh, jugular on one side of their neck. They may have a central line on the other side of the neck, a tube uh, for their endotracheal tube, uh, a EKG lead on, um, IVs on both sides, an A-line set up for both sides, and a Foley catheter. And we're going to take some of these patients whose BMIs can be well over 40 and flip them into the prone position safely and keep all those cords and all those lines set up. They developed a system where it's one person manages the head, which is often the respiratory therapist, um, or the one of the uh, the physicians from the unit. And then the four orthopedic surgeons uh, would go in there and take all the lines down, we would cap the IVs, we'd stop the feeding tubes. The only one that stayed in place, of course, was the was the uh, endotracheal tube and the Foley catheter. And then we'd flip these patients into a comfortable position around three to four to five o'clock in the afternoon, and they would stay that way until we came back and flipped them back into the supine position at nine o'clock in the morning, so 16 to 18 hours. And there's good evidence in ARDS that 12 or more hours um, is statistically... Um, significant decrease in mortality. And we are—we strongly believe we'll be able to report the same thing from our experience within the Northwell system and at Lenox Hill Hospital when all the numbers come back. So this was our way to give back. Um, I can tell you that when I went the first time, my wife cried uh, because she was worried that I was going right back into the uh, situation where we didn't know if you could get reinfected. We didn't know um, whether it was going to be safe. Uh, But I... I'd seen the work of the residents and the fellows at Lenox Hill, and I just felt compelled to be part of that team and to help out as best I could and hope that I, my immunity would give it another layer of protection.
1: No, that, that was a, that's really a great story. So, so look, so, so Rothman's going to survive in New York for sure. Right. You guys are making, yes. making some changes to be able to get through this. Yes. Uh, but we're going to see Rothman going through for sure.
0: Yes, that's, that's exactly right. We, uh, they Everyone is hurting right now. No orthopedic practice is running uh, full steam. Everyone has had to make adjustments. And each adjustment along the way has to take into consideration uh, what I believe is your most important asset, which is the people that work in your practice with you and for you, as well as the ability to run your business or the commerce. And you've got to find the proper blend of those two uh, factors, and they're they're not necessarily uh, work together. I mean, uh, employee salaries are very, very, uh, is a big part of the overhead. And it's hard to carry that when there's essentially no revenue coming into the practice. And yet at the same time, uh, you'll have to decide whether you borrow against the employees by furloughing them. And so they have to bear the burden of this from their own Uh, lack of income, or the practice decides to take out loans to bear that burden, or some blend of the two so that it's a shared responsibility. And there's no right or wrong way, uh, but I think that um, it's just important, uh, I think, as physicians, despite running large businesses, we need to keep people before commerce, and we need to take care of the people that have allowed us to get to where we're at today, um, and yet at the same time, be reasonable with what it takes for the business to stay solvent. And I think uh, places like Rothman, as well as other institutions are working very hard to make that happen.
1: That's fantastic. So, you know, Tony, I, I can't thank you enough. This was really an amazing personal as well as professional story about how you're uh you're surviving through this pandemic it's very different around the country some people don't aren't exposed so i think to be able to hear your story is really
0: quite profound and
1: we can't thank you enough for being here with us today
0: Scott, thank you for the opportunity. I I do want to just bring up one last point, and that is uh, that we've heard this quote before, never waste the opportunity offered by a good crisis. And it's been been attributed to a few different people, but it goes all the way back to Machiavelli, who's considered uh, uh, not necessarily the positive side of of, uh, politics. Uh, But the point of it is, is that we were stressed to the level that most of us have never seen before. And because of that, because of what you spoke about very early on, because of this desire to get better, the desire to innovate, we're going to see some amazing advances in healthcare and the way we care for people, including what you spoke about in your previous uh, podcast with telemedicine and how that's no longer going to be just a gimmick. That's going to be integrated into the way that we actually improve the care of our patients. And then the other things that you do in terms of the lasers, uh, the way we uh, are able to adjust our schedules and manage patients, I think that um, this crisis will pull us together in ways, uh, not only in our own country, but almost globally, in terms of the way we can care for people in a better way. So I, it's been sad to see the tragedies, particularly in the Northeast. Um, but I'm thankful that there's a lot of incredibly bright people that are working towards making sure that we don't waste this crisis and that we learn from it and we get better in many ways possible.
1: Well said, brother. So this is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of The Ortho Show. Till next time.